Chapter One of Ravensdean Court. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford, Middlebury, Vermont, USA. Ravensdean Court by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter One: The Inn on the Cliff. According to an entry in my book of engagements. I left London for Ravensdean Court on March 8, 1912. Until about a fortnight earlier I had never heard of the place, but there was nothing remarkable in my ignorance of it, seeing that it stands on a remote part of the Northumbrian coast, and at least three hundred miles from my usual haunts. But then, towards the end of February, I received the following letter, which I may as well print it full. It serves as a fitting and an explanatory introduction to a series of adventures so extraordinary, mysterious, and fraught with danger that I am still wondering how I, until then a man of peaceful and even dull life, ever came safely through them. Ravensdean Court near Alnwick, Northumberland, February 24, 1912. Dear Sir, I am told by my friend Mr. Gervase Witherby of Monks Wellborough, with whom I understand you to be well acquainted, that you are one of our leading experts in matters relating to old books, documents, and the like, and the very man to inspect, value, and generally criticize the contents of an ancient library. Accordingly, I should be very glad to secure your valuable services. I have recently entered into possession of this place, a very old manor-house on the Northumbrian coast, wherein the senior branch of my family has been settled for some four hundred years. There are here many thousands of volumes, the majority of considerable age. There are also large collections of pamphlets, manuscripts, and broadsheets. My immediate predecessor, my uncle, John Christopher Raven, was a great collector, but from what I have seen of his collection up to now, I cannot say that he was a great exponent of the art of order, or a devotee of system, for an entire wing on this house is neither more or less than a museum, into which books, papers, antiques, and similar things appear to have been dumped without regard to classification or arrangement. I am not a bookman, nor an antiquary, my life until recently has been spent in far different fashion as a financial commissioner in India. I am, however, sincerely anxious that these new possessions of mine should be properly cared for, and I should like an expert to examine everything that is here, and to advise me as to proper arrangement and provision for the future. I should, accordingly, be greatly obliged if you could make it convenient to come here as my guest, give me the benefit of your expert knowledge, and charge me whatever fee seems good to you. I cannot promise you anything very lively in the way of amusement in your hours of relaxation, for this is a lonely place, and my family consists of nothing but myself and my niece, a girl of nineteen, just released from the schoolroom. But you may find some more congenial society in another guest of mine, Mr. Septimus Cazalet, the eminent authority on numismatics, who is here for the purpose of examining the vast collection of coins and medals 
formed by the kinsman I have just referred to. I can also promise you the advantages of a particularly bracing climate, and assure you of a warm welcome and every possible provision for your comfort. In the hope that you will be able to come to me at an early date, I am, dear sir, yours truly, Francis Raven. Leonard Middlebrook, Esquire, 35M, Old Buildings, Lincoln's Inn, W.C. Several matters referred to in this letter inclined me towards going to Ravensdean Court, the old family mansion, the thousands of ancient volumes, the prospect of unearthing something of real note, the chance of examining a collector's harvest, and, perhaps more than anything, the genuinely courteous and polite tone of my invitation. I was not particularly busy at that time, nor had I been out of London for more than a few days now and then for several years. A change to the far different north had its attractions. And after a brief correspondence with him, I arranged to go down to Mr. Raven early in March, and remain under his roof until I had completed the task which he desired me to undertake. As I have said already, I left London on the 8th of March, journeying to Newcastle by the afternoon express from King's Cross. I spent that night at Newcastle, and went forward next morning to Alnuth, which, according to a map with which I had provided myself, was the nearest station to Ravensdean Court. And soon after arriving at Alnuth, the first chapter of my adventures opened, and came about by sheer luck. It was a particularly fine, bright, sharply bracing morning, and as I was under no particular obligation to present myself at Ravensdean Court at any fixed time, I determined to walk thither by way of the coast. The distance, according to my map, was about nine or ten miles. Accordingly, sending on my luggage by a conveyance, with a message to Mr. Raven that I should arrive during the afternoon, I made through the village of Lesbury toward the sea, and before long came in sight of it, a glorious stretch of blue, smooth that day as an island lake, and shining like polished steel in the light of the sun. There was not a sail in sight, north or south, or due east, nor a wisp of trailing smoke from any passing steamer. I got an impression of silent, unbroken immensity, which seemed a fitting prelude to the solitudes into which my mission had brought me. I was at that time just thirty years of age, and though I had been closely kept to London of late years, my youth had been spent in lonely places, and I had an innate love of solitudes and wide spaces. I saw at once that I should fall in love with this Northumbrian coast, and once on its headlands I took my time, sauntering along at my leisure. Mr. Raven, in one of his letters, had mentioned seven as his dinner hour. Therefore I had the whole day before me. By noon the sun had grown warm, even summer-like, warm enough at any rate to warrant me in sitting down on a ledge of the cliffs while I smoked a pipe of tobacco, and stared lazily at the mighty stretch of water, across which, once upon a time, the Vikings had swarmed from Norway. I must have become absorbed in my meditations. Certainly it was with a start of surprise that I suddenly realized that somebody was near me, and looked up to see, standing close by and eyeing me furtively, a man. 
It was, perhaps, the utter loneliness of my immediate surroundings just then that made me wonder to see any living thing so near. At that point there was neither a sail on the sea nor a human habitation on the land. There was not even a sheep cropping the herbage of the headlands. I think there were some birds calling about the pinnacles of the cliffs, yet it seemed to me that the man broke a complete stillness when he spoke as he quietly wished me a good morning. The sound of his voice startled me. Also it brought me out of a reverie and sharpened my wits, and as I replied to him I took him in from head to foot. A thick-set, middle-aged man, tidily dressed in a blue serge suit of nautical cut, the sort of thing that they sell ready-made in seaports and naval stations. His clothes went with his dark skin and grizzled hair and beard, and with the gold rings which he wore in his ears. And there was that about him which suggested that he was for that time an idler, lounging. "'A fine morning,' I remarked, not at all averse to entering into conversation, and already somewhat curious about him. "'A fine morning it is, master, and good weather, and likely to keep so,' he answered, glancing around at sea and sky. Then he looked significantly at my knickerbockers, and at a small satchel which I carried over my shoulders. "'The right sort of weather,' he added, "'for gentlemen walking about the country, pleasuring.' "'You know these parts,' I suggested. "'No,' he said with a decisive shake of his head. "'I don't, master, and that's a fact. "'I'm from the south, I am, never been up this way before, "'and queerly enough, for I've seen most of the world in my time, "'never sailed this here sea as lies before us. "'But I've a sort of connection with this bit of country. "'Mother's side came from hereabouts, "'and me, having nothing particular to do, I came down here to take a cast round like, seeing places as I've heard of, heard of, you understand, but ain't never seen. Then you're stopping in the neighborhood, I asked. He raised one of his brown hairy hands and jerked a thumb landwards. Stopped last night in a little place inland, he answered, name of Lesbury, a riverside spot, but that ain't what I want. What I want is a churchyard or it might be two, or it might be three, where this gravestone's what bears a name. Only I don't know where that churchyard, or again there may be more than one, is, d'ye see? Except somewhere between Almouth one way and Bradnell Bay t'other. I have a good map if it's of any use to you, I said. He took the map with a word of thanks, and, after spreading it out, traced places with the end of his thick forefinger. "'Hereabouts we are at this present, master,' he said, "'and here and there is, to be sure, villages, mostly inland. "'And'll have graveyards to em. "'Folks must be laid aware somewhere. "'And in one of them graveyards there'll be a name, "'and if I see that name I'll know where I am, "'and I can ask further, aiming to find out "'if any of that name is still flourishing hereabouts. "'But till I get that name I'm clear off my course, so to speak.' "'What is the name?' I asked him. "'Name of Netherfield,' he answered slowly. "'Netherfield. Mother's people, long since. So I've been told. And seen it, in old books, what I have far away in Devonport. That's the name right enough, only I don't know where to look for it. You ain't seen it, master, in your wanderings round these parts?' 
i've only come into these parts this morning i replied but if you look closely at that map you'll observe that there aren't many villages along the coast so your search ought not to be a lengthy one i should question if you'll find more than two or three churchyards between here and brandell bay judging by the map ay well netherfield is the name he repeated netherfield mother's side in some churchyards hereabouts and there may be some of em left and again there mayn't be my name being quick salter quick of devonport when on land he folded up and handed back the map with an old-fashioned bow i rose from the ledge of rock on which i had been resting and made to go forward i hope you'll come across what you're seeking mr quick i said but i should say you won't have much difficulty there can't be many churchyards in this quarter and not many gravestones in any of them i found nothing in that one behind he answered jerking his thumb toward lesbury and it's a long time since my mother left these parts but here i am for the purpose d'ye see master time's no object nor yet expense a man must take a bit of a holiday some day or other ain't had one me for thirty-odd year we walked forward northing our course along the headlands and rounding a sharp corner we suddenly came in sight of a little settlement that lay halfway down the cliff there was a bit of a cottage or two two or three boats drawn up on a strip of yellow sand a crumbling smithy and above these things on a shelf of rock a low-roofed long-fronted inn by the gable of which rose a mast wherefrom floated a battered flag at the sight of this i saw a gleam come into my companion's eye and i was quick to understand its meaning do you feel disposed to a glass of ale i asked i should say we could get one down there rum he replied laconically rum is my drink master used to that i ain't used to ale cold stuff give me something that warms a man it's poor ale that won't warm a man's belly i said with a laugh but every man to his taste come on then he followed in silence down the path to the lonely inn once looking back i saw that he was turning a sharp eye round and about the new stretch of country that had just opened before us from the inn and its surroundings a winding track a merely rough cartway wound off and upward into the land in the distance i saw the tower of a church salter quick saw it too and nodded significantly in its direction that'll be where i'll make next he observed but first meat and drink i ate my breakfast before seven this morning and this walking about on dry land makes a man hungry drink you'll get here no doubt said i but as to meat doubtful his reply to that was to point to the sign above the inn door to which we were now close he read its announcement aloud slowly the mariner's joy by hildebrand clague good entertainment for man and beast he pronounced entertainment that means eating meat for man hay for cattle not that there's much sign of either in these parts i think master we walked into the mariner's joy side by side turning into a low-ceilinged darkish room neat and clean enough wherein there was a table chairs the model of a ship in a glass case on the mantelpiece and a small bar furnished with bottles and glasses behind which stood a tall middle-aged man clean-shaven spectacled reading a newspaper 
He bade us good morning with no sign of surprise at the presence of strangers, and looked expectantly from one to the other. I turned to my companion. Well, I said, you'll drink with me? What is it, rum? Rum it is, master, thanking you, he replied, but victuals too is what I want. He glanced knowingly at the landlord. You ain't got such a thing as a plateful, a good plateful, of cold beef with a pickle, onion or walnut, taint no matter, and bread, a loaf of real home-baked, and a morsel of cheese? The landlord smiled as he reached for the rum bottle. I dare say we can fit you up, my lad, he answered. Got a nice round of boiled beef on go, as it happens. Drop a rum first, eh? And yours, sir? A glass of ale, if you please, said I, and, as I'm not quite as hungry as our friend here, a crust of bread and a piece of cheese. The landlord satisfied our demands, and then vanished through a door at the back of his bar. And when he had expressed his wishes for my good health, Salter Quick tasted the rum, smacked his lips over it, and looked about him with evident approval. Sort of port that a vessel might put into with security and comfort for a day or two, this, master, he observed. I reckon I'll put myself up here while I'm looking round. This will do me very well. And doubtless there'll be them coming in here at night-time as'll know the neighbourhood, and be able to give a man points as to his bearings. I dare say you'll be very comfortable here, I assented. It's not exactly a desert island. Aye, well, and Salter Quick's been in quarters of that sort in his time, he observed with a glance that suggested infinite meeting. He has so, but this ain't no desert island, master. I can see they ain't short of good grub and sound liquor here. He made his usual jerk of the thumb, this time in the direction of the landlord, who just then came back with the well-filled tray. And presently, first removing his cap and saying his grace in a devout fashion, he sat down and began to eat with an evidently sharp-set appetite. Trifling with my bread and cheese, I turned to the landlord. "'This is a very lonely spot,' I said. "'I was surprised to see a licensed house here. Where do you get your customers?' "'Ah, you wouldn't see it as you came along,' replied the landlord. "'I saw you coming. You came from Almouth way. There's a village just behind here. It'd be hidden from you by this headland at the back of the house. Good-sized place. Plenty of custom from that o' nights. And, of course, there's folks going along north and south.' Quick, his weather-stained cheeks bulging with his food, looked up sharply. "'A village, says you,' he exclaimed. "'Then, if a village, a church. And if a church, a churchyard. There is a churchyard, ain't there?' "'Why, there is a church, and there's a churchyard to it,' replied the landlord. "'What of that?' Quick nodded at me. "'As I've been explaining to this gentleman,' he said, "'churchyards is what I'm looking for. Graves in em, you understand, and on them graves a name. Name of Netherfield. Now I asks you friendly. Have you ever seen that name in your churchyard? Cause if so, I'm at anchor, for the time being.' "'Well, I haven't,' answered the landlord. "'But our churchyard, Lord bless you, there's scores of them flat stones in it that's covered over the long grass. There might be that name on some of them, for aught I know. I've never looked them over, I'm sure. But—' Just then there came into the parlour a man, who from his rough dress appeared to be a cattle-drover or a shepherd. 
Plague turned to him with a glance that seemed to indicate him as authority. "'Here's one as lives by that churchyard,' he observed. "'Jim, have you ever noticed the name of Netherfield on any of them old gravestones up yonder? This gentleman's asking after it, and I know you mow that churchyard grass time and again.' "'Never seen it,' answered the newcomer. "'But strange things. There was a man come up to me the other night this side of Lesbury and asked that very question.' Not of these parts he wasn't, but... He stopped at that. Salter Quick dropped his knife and fork with a clatter, and held up his right hand. End of chapter 1